If you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke chapter 1. This morning we're taking a break from the, the Gospel of John. We'll be in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Luke writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now this passage that we have just read is one that is full of good news. This is a passage that announces the coming of a king, the coming of the king, even the king of kings. And as we consider this good news that is taught to us in these verses, we'll do so this morning under four main headings. First, the ancestry of the king. Secondly, the nature of his kingdom. Thirdly, the grace and power of God. And then fourthly, the proper response. So the ancestry of the king, the nature of the kingdom, the grace and power of God, and the proper response. And so first of all, the ancestry of the king. The angel Gabriel, of course, as we're told here, came to Nazareth, to the virgin who was engaged to be married to Joseph, who was of the descendants of David. And this designation there in the verse indicating that this one was a descendant of David, seems to be particularly stated in regard to Joseph, but it is true also of Mary as well. And so Luke 2.4 explicitly affirms Joseph's Davidic descent, and Romans chapter 1, verse 3 affirms the Davidic descent of Mary. And so Gabriel comes to this virgin Mary and brings her good tidings, good tidings that she has found favor with God, tidings that the Lord is with her. And his message to her is what we find in verses 31 through 33. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now, in those words, we see the the ancestry of our King Jesus. He's conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Mary would be the mother of this king, the king 
would be conceived in her womb and would derive his humanity from her. It's important that we understand that Mary was not an imaginary mother to Jesus. She was the real mother of Jesus. The manner of Christ's conception was indeed miraculous without a human father, but yet we must never think of somehow that the humanity of our Lord Jesus was given to him apart from his mother. We must never think of Mary as being some kind of simply a, a host mother or something like that who simply brought Jesus to term and gave birth to him. Not at all. We're told in Hebrews chapter 2 that since children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all of their lives. In other words, Jesus took part, or partook, we should say, of flesh and blood in order to be our Savior. The flesh and blood of Jesus is derived from his mother. For if it were not derived from her, then how indeed could Jesus be the son of David? How indeed could Jesus be the seed of the woman who would crush the head of serpent if his human flesh were not derived from the woman? So Jesus is truly human, and his human nature is given to him through Mary. It is in this way that Jesus fulfills the promises that are given to David of an everlasting throne, that he is, as we find in Romans chapter 1, that he is, according to the flesh, born of a descendant of David, unless he truly is the son of David. But this is not all in regard to the ancestry of this king. You'll notice in verse 32, not only is David called his father, but you'll notice also that Jesus is called the son of the Most High. He will be called the Son of the Most High because He is, in truth, the Son of the Most High. In other words, He is the eternal Son of God. Though His human nature had its origins in the womb of Mary, as a divine person with a divine nature, our Lord Jesus is eternal. Bar the language of the formula of Chalcedon, Christ, as regards His Godhead, is begotten of the Father before all ages. Yet as regards His manhood, He is begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin. And thus we're told by the prophet Micah, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be a ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And in that prophecy in Micah chapter 5, we see that on the one hand, Jesus goes forth from Bethlehem, because as we know, he's born there. But then on the other hand, his goings forth are actually from the days of eternity. This king is, is both God and man. And so this is the, the ancestry of the king. Now let's look to the, the nature of his kingdom, which is our second point for this morning. The nature of Christ's kingdom is spelled out for us there in verses 32 and 33, where we are told that the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Now let's notice three things there in those verses about Christ's kingdom. One, his kingdom is the revived Davidic kingdom because he's on David's throne. Secondly, he will reign over the house of Jacob. And thirdly, his kingdom will have no end. Now let's consider these three aspects and we'll see that all three of them actually fit together and coalesce. First, Christ's kingdom is the revived Davidic kingdom because his throne is David's throne. The Lord, of course, had promised to David in the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 that his kingdom would be established forever, that his house and his kingdom would endure before the Lord forever. 
And we know of how the prophets later on indicate that this perpetual Davidic kingdom would find its fulfillment. And so we, we read this morning that prophecy from Ezekiel 37, where the Lord says, My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and observe them. They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons forever, and David, my servant, will be their prince forever. Now the Messiah there in excuse me, Ezekiel 37 is called David, and it's certainly within the bounds of, of biblical prophecy to refer to the coming one by the name of the person who is a type, who was a type, of the one who was to come. So in Ezekiel 37, the Christ is called David. Similarly, in Haggai chapter 2, verse 23, the coming Messiah is referred to as Zerubbabel because Zerubbabel was a type of Christ. He was a type of the one who was to come. And what we find in the, in the prophets that though Ezekiel refers to him as David, the prophets more broadly refer to the Messiah as the descendant of David, as the, the son of David. And so, uh, for instance, Isaiah spoke of the Messiah as the, the shoot that would come from the stump of Jesse in Isaiah 11. Jeremiah speaks of him in Jeremiah thirty three fifteen as the righteous branch of David. It says in Jeremiah thirty three eleven that David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And this is, of course, that to which the, the angel is speaking of Mary that this son who would be born to her is the son of David who would reign in a renewed Davidic kingdom. And it is to the subject of this renewed Davidic kingdom that our reading this morning from Amos chapter 9 directed us as well. And so through Amos, Amos 9.11, the Lord says, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches and rebuild it as in the days of old. In verse 12, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament history, it makes clear to us that the successors of David upon the throne of Israel and after Solomon upon the throne of the southern kingdom of Judah were a mixed bag. There were, there were good men and bad men and multiple shades of gray in between. If you read those histories of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and at the end of those histories, what we find is that the kingdom itself collapsed. The descendants of David were still living, but they were not reigning. And though when Amos was, was prophesying, the booth of David was still standing. When Amos was prophesying, the southern kingdom of Judah was, was still up and running. There was a Davidic descendant on the throne in Judah at that time. But Amos was looking forward, looking ahead to a time when the booth would have collapsed because only after it had fallen would it be rebuilt again. And that promise is fulfilled with the coming of Christ. We Read about that in verses 32 and 33 here of Luke chapter 1. What is, what is this but the rebuilding of the fallen booth of David? And that same prophecy, Amos 9.12, describes what, what happens when this kingdom is restored. The kingdom is, is rebuilt, we're told, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Now in this, there's a prophecy of the, the expansion of the kingdom. When the Lord rebuilt the kingdom, it would include the remnant of Edom and all the nations who were called 
by the Lord's name. All whom the Lord would call from whatever nation they belonged to. Old enemies would be included in this kingdom because they were brought to bow the knee to the king. Now, how does this occur? It occurs by the coming of Jesus and the proclamation of the gospel in the New Testament times as the Gentiles are brought into the kingdom through faith in Christ. And this is not simply my educated guess. This is what the apostles teach us in Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, of course, is the, is the Jerusalem council. Paul and Barnabas had gone up to Jerusalem to talk with the apostles and elders about the question of circumcision, whether the Gentiles who had professed faith in Christ must be circumcised or not. And Paul and Barnabas said, no, they shouldn't be. And they reported of how the Gentiles had been saved through faith. And Peter, likewise, gave testimony of how Cornelius and his family had been saved and had received the Holy Spirit. There was no distinction between circumcised and uncircumcised in regard to the the gift of the Holy Spirit. All alike received the Holy Spirit. And Peter expressed his faith that the ground was level, that all were saved in the same way. He said, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And then when Peter and Paul and Barnabas had had made their speeches to the the council there at Jerusalem, then James, the, the leader of the Jerusalem church, spoke up and he applied the words of Amos 9, 11, and 12 to the reality that they were considering. The Gentiles, the nations being brought to faith in Christ. And so James says there in Acts chapter 9, he says, brethren, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 15, he says, brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophet agree, just as it is written. And then he quotes from Amos chapter 9. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacles of David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. And when we, when we think about Amos 9 in the context of Acts chapter 15, it's clear how this functions in James's thinking. As he considers these reports of Gentiles coming to faith, reports that he's heard from Peter and Paul and Barnabas, he sees this as the fulfillment of Amos chapter 9. He understands that the Gentiles are coming to faith and his mind goes to Amos chapter 9 as if to say, of course, David's fallen tent is rebuilt. When the Messiah comes, the Messiah has come. The kingdom is being restored, albeit spiritually restored, since Christ's kingdom is not of this world. But nevertheless, the kingdom is really being restored. And then he thinks, now look what's happening. The Gentiles are coming to the Lord. They are trusting in Jesus. They are taking the name of the Lord upon them. This is the reality that James saw unfolding ahead of him. He saw it prophesied in Amos. He saw it playing out in real time before him. And so then let's, let's try to connect the dots backward from Acts 15 to Amos 9, back to the angel's announcement to Mary in Luke chapter 1. In Acts 15, James tells us that the prophecy of Amos 9 about the rebuilding of the fallen booth of David is fulfilled in Christ and in the proclamation of the gospel as it goes out to the Gentiles. If David's fallen booth is restored, then that means that the kingdom is restored. And where there is a kingdom, there is also a king. Is it any wonder then that at the beginning of his earthly ministry, our Lord Jesus says that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand? Mark chapter 1, verse 15. 
So this kingdom is inaugurated at the coming of Christ. And that kingdom continues and expands now as the gospel goes forth and as Jesus reigns over both Jewish believers and Gentile believers alike, all of them join together into one body, which is to say that Gentile believers are grafted into the nation of Israel, as Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 11. And this is so much the case that Paul can write to the Gentile Galatian believers that if they belong to Christ, then they are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise, Galatians 3.29. And if Gentile believers are reckoned as Abraham's seed and as engrafted into Israel, then surely they may also legitimately be reckoned as belonging to the house of Jacob, over which the son of Mary would reign, as indicated by the angel here in Luke 1.33. And this kingdom, then, which was inaugurated at Christ's first coming, will continue on for eternity. It will have no end. It will be consummated at Christ's return in glory, and all of his people will be with him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. This is Christ's kingdom. It is David's fallen booth rebuilt. A kingdom which is inaugurated at his first coming, will be consummated at his return. It's a kingdom that encompasses both Jews and Gentiles, all united together into one body, all who believe in Christ. It's a kingdom that is eternal. And in the preaching of the gospel, the invitation is open for all who hear to enter into this kingdom, to receive grace and mercy from our Lord and King Jesus Christ, and to follow him. The invitation is open when the gospel is proclaimed. Repent and believe in Christ. Come to him. Enter into his kingdom. Submit to this king. Learn his ways. Worship him and follow him. And this brings us to our third point, which is the grace and power of God. The grace and power of God is displayed in the coming of this king. And the grace and power that is displayed in his coming is, we could say, emblematic of the effects which are brought by this king. In other words, Jesus brings grace and works with power in the lives of his people, just as his coming into the world was attended with grace and power. And so we, we see the grace and power of God at work here in Christ's coming. We see, first of all, God's grace in that he showed special favor to Mary. This was a poor young girl in the backcountry area of Galilee. Yet the angel Gabriel said to her that she was favored, that she was a recipient of the grace and blessing of God. And indeed she was. She played a unique role in the history of salvation. She alone, of all women, gave birth to the Son of God. Mary herself described God's grace to her later on, here in Luke 1, verses 46 to 49, when she said, "'My soul exalts the Lord.'" And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bondslave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. That the Lord God Almighty chose such a young woman to conceive and give birth to the one who was in fact the only begotten Son of God was indeed a marvelous act of the grace of God toward her. She didn't deserve that special honor. This was God's grace toward her. And we see not only grace here, but also power. Mary was baffled by this, how she, a virgin, would be able to conceive and give birth. And so she asks Gabriel, how can this be? And Gabriel replied to that, 
that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child or the Holy Thing Begotten shall be called the Son of God. And then as supporting evidence, Gabriel goes on to describe how God does this kind of thing. He gives an example from an event that was then current. Verses 36 and 37, he says, Behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, and she who was called barren is now in her sixth month, for nothing will be impossible with God. That is how these events will come about, because nothing is impossible with God. God is omnipotent. God can do all of his holy will. He can make an older, barren woman like Elizabeth conceive in her old age, that type of thing, after all, was how the nation of Israel came into being in the first place. Abraham had the promise that he and his wife would conceive a child, and Sarah laughed. Because, see, that's not going to happen. But nothing is impossible with God. He can enable older and barren women to conceive. He can also make a virgin conceive. And he did this by causing the Holy Spirit to come upon her, to cause the power of the Most High to overshadow her. And how this happened, of course, is a great mystery, one of which we must be reverent. Suffice it to say that the power of the Most High overshadowed Mary, the Holy Spirit came upon her, or to use the language of Matthew 1.18, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Now this is unique. This has never happened before in the history of the world, and it never will again. It seems that Jeremiah was speaking of the virgin birth, Jeremiah 30, verse 22, when he said that the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. In other words, a woman will encompass a mighty man, a champion. That word that's translated there as as man in Jeremiah 32 has this connotation of being a mighty man or a champion. One of the reformers expressed it this way, commenting on Jeremiah 30. He said, A woman will encircle and carry in her womb that promised seed of a woman, not the seed of man. She will encircle and enclose within her maternal organs the greatest, most steadfast, largest crusher of the serpent's head, that omnipotent man. Then the Lord will create and make a new thing, so that a woman encircles in the womb the one who crushes the serpent's head, who is not the seed of a man, but the seed of a woman. In all of this, we see the grace and power of God. We see God's power in doing this new thing, in bringing this about which had never occurred before, that a virgin would give birth to a son who is the son of God. We see God's grace in that he chose Mary to be the mother of our Lord. She was highly favored and viewed by God with grace. And the result is that now all generations count her blessed. And this grace and power which is at work in bringing the Son of God, our King, into the world is, as we said, emblematic of the effects that are brought by our King. In other words, Jesus works with grace and power in the lives of his people. He brings grace to people who have been sitting in darkness. Those who are sitting in darkness have seen a great light. Christ is that light, and he calls men and women out of the darkness into his light. He calls us out of the darkness of our sins, out of the darkness of our wickedness, and he offers us light. He offers us reconciliation, full forgiveness of all of our sins, restored peace with God. He offers us a free pardon for all that we have done. 
regardless of how we have sinned against God, the slate is wiped clean for all who come to Christ in faith. The words of Micah 7, 18, and 19 are true. Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity, passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. This is grace. And this grace of the gospel is accompanied with power. So Paul says to the Thessalonians that our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 By this power of God at work in the gospel, he brings life where before there had been no life, where before there had been death. Those who hear the voice of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus, and believe are raised to new life. We are even raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places. And that spiritual reality, that being raised up and seated with Him in the heavenly places, will become one day a physical reality as well. For we find in Philippians 3.21 that the Lord Jesus Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of that power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. Christ has all power. He will raise us and we will be conformed to Him in the resurrection. He was raised glorious and imperishable. All who trust in Him will be raised glorified, imperishable. And in the meantime, the Holy Spirit is at work in us with power, transforming us, conforming us to the image of Christ. The Spirit is carrying on that great work of sanctification as we seek more and more to daily to die to ourselves and to our sins and to live more and more unto God, keeping in step with the Spirit and thereby walking in greater and greater obedience to the commandments of God. Our minds are more and more conformed to Christ as we grow to love the Word of God and the ways of God more and more. This is nothing short of the power of God at work within His people. The grace and power of God was at work in the sending of His only begotten Son into the world, and it's good news for us that that grace and power is still at work. As the gospel calls sinners to new life in Christ, and as believers are built up and caused to grow more in Christ, and as we anticipate the resurrection on the last day when we will be raised up and our physical bodies will be with Christ forever. And so, then what should we do? What is the proper response to all that we've seen here? Well, the proper response is humble faith, and this is our fourth point for this morning, the proper response. The proper response is humble faith. And we see this humble faith modeled for us so well in the response that we see from from Mary. Mary had just been given a great honor, great responsibility, but a great honor nonetheless. She'd been told things that she did not fully comprehend. And in her puzzlement at such, she didn't reject or rebel against what she was told. She simply asked, how can this be since I am a virgin? And after the angel gave her the explanation of how it would come about, she replied in those wonderful words of verse 38, Behold, the bondslave of the Lord may be done to me according to your word. Now those are remarkable words of humble faith 
coming from a young woman who had just received the most astounding news she could have possibly received. And at the end of it all, she submitted herself to the word of the Lord that had been delivered to her by the angel. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. She trusted the word of the Lord, which she had heard from Gabriel. She submitted herself to the Lord by presenting herself to the Lord as his servant. And as you and I think about the good news of the the coming of Christ at this time of year and the Christmas season and so on, the response of Mary is worthy of our imitation. Mary had heard this good news that she would give birth to a son, that she would give birth to the Son of God who would reign forever on the throne of David. And she trusted the Lord. She submitted herself to him. That's the right response in every situation. And so may it be our response as well. We've heard the good news this morning about this king who was to come, this king who did in fact come. And we know what he did while he was on earth, how he lived a sinless life, how he explained God the Father to us. He went to the cross to die for sinners and rose again the third day as the first fruits of those who will be raised. And we know how he ascended to the right hand of God the Father and now sits waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. He calls us to trust in him. He calls us to turn away from our sins. He has showed us by his teaching what sin is and he commands us to stop it. He has shown us what is good and he commands us to obey it. And the right response to Jesus is to believe him and submit to him. Now this of course doesn't mean that all of our questions will be automatically and immediately answered. There are going to be some things that we don't understand along the way. Being finite creatures, we cannot understand everything about the infinite God. We just can't. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us. We're not going to understand all of God's ways. We're not always going to understand the ways in which God has and is providentially working in our lives and in the lives of others and in the world in general. Not going to understand it all. That's all right. We don't have to understand everything. We don't have to have all of the answers. But what we must do is trust God and submit ourselves to Him. Practically speaking, that means we trust in Christ. We repent of our sins. We believe this good news that Christ came into the world to die for sinners so that we might receive forgiveness and newness of life, and in dying to our sins, we seek by the Spirit to live new lives in Christ. If I may borrow the language of the Sermon of the, of the Nativity from the Book of Homilies, some wonderful words. Christ is the light. Let us receive the light. Christ is the truth. Let us believe the truth. Christ is the way. Let us follow the way. And because he is our only master, our only teacher, our only shepherd and chief captain. Therefore, let us become his servants, his scholars, his sheep, and his soldiers. As for sin, the flesh, and the world, and the devil, whose servants and bond slaves we were before Christ's coming, let us utterly cast them off and defy them as the chief and only enemies of our souls. Let us receive Christ, not for a time, but forever. Let us believe his word, not for a time, but forever. Let us become his servants not for a time, but forever. In consideration that he has redeemed us and saved us, not for a time, but forever, and will receive us into his heavenly kingdom there to reign with him, not for a time, but forever.
This is eternal realities of which we are speaking. Christ would reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom would have no end. And Christ is our king. And just as the coming of a king was good news for these people here, we also have good news that a king is coming one day for us. Now, in Mary's day, she knew when that king was coming. Right? She was going to conceive and give birth to a son. She knew. She had a timetable. We don't have that timetable. But we know that our king is coming. And just as his coming was good news for his people back then, who were in some ways weary of the world and oppressed by, by sin and by the wickedness that is in the world, so also is his coming good news for us. His coming for us is good news for people who are troubled and harassed by the world in which we live, who are tired of sin and death and sickness and suffering and wickedness. Christ will come and put an end to all of those things. His coming was good news. His coming is good news. Let's praise God and let's follow Christ our King. Our Father, we praise you for the good news of the gospel. We praise you for the coming of Christ, the redemption that is ours even now. And yet we acknowledge that now we live in the time between the times. That we are awaiting Christ's consummation. We are awaiting uh, the joining of him in his eternal kingdom. We're awaiting the resurrection and the renovation of the world, the new heavens and the new earth. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us to, uh, to wait in patience, to wait in hope, to wait in expectation, and to wait in joy as we think of Christ and of what has been promised to us in your word. We praise you for your kindness and your goodness to us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.